Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. So, it's happened three times in our life. Twice in California and once in China. And it was the beautiful, surreal, powerful moment when each of our children were placed in our arms through adoption. Our son Cruz, who's now 21, uh, who lives in Ohio, uh, Army National Guardsman and a welder, certified welder working there, um, was placed in our arms hours after he was born there in a hospital in Fresno, California. Isabel, who is now uh, her first time at GCU, hanging out with us here in Arizona, uh, was also, hours after she was born, placed in our arms there in French Camp, California. And then there was a moment when we were in China, and uh, this beautiful little two-year-old was placed in our arms there, our daughter Faith, our youngest. And each one of those moments came with this sense of entrusting. Like this child was entrusted to us the moment they were placed in our arms, the moment they came into our family, we are now entrusted with their care and their well-being and their spiritual formation and their life and their provisions. And they're now entrusted to us and our family. It's an absolute beautiful, powerful moment that, that Rick and I will never forget with each one of those little children. And um, when you think about the, the, the sense of, being entrusted with something or someone, what comes with the sense of entrusting is that this moment is both about a gift and responsibility. That whenever you're entrusted, it's both a gift and a responsibility. So I want you to think about the times in your life when you had that sense of being entrusted. Uh, maybe it was also being entrusted with the child, whether through biological or adoption or foster care, uh, those children are placed into your arms and the, the great weight of being entrusted with these children. Or men, maybe it was when a father placed the hand of his daughter into your hands and you recognize that this man who was, was raised and cared for and protected, this woman is now, that's now your responsibility to provide, protect, and lead. And she's been entrusted to you. Maybe it was the keys to the car when you were 16. 17, what a gift, what a responsibility, right? Maybe it was a project at work. Maybe it was house-sitting for somebody. Think about all the different times that you've been entrusted in your life. And you felt both the weight of the giftedness of that moment and the weight of the responsibility. And the reality is, that as followers of Christ, we have been entrusted with the gospel. This message this message that fallen humanity, who is uh, just reeking with sin, can be restored back into relationship with God through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest news that exists in humanity. And this is the gospel, the good news of how we can be restored back into relationship with God, back into a, a healing bond with the one who made us. This is the gospel. We've all been entrusted with the gospel to share it, to, to, to live it with the people that we live by, 
that we learn by, that we uh, work by, and those we also play by, all the recreational opportunities. So as a follower of Christ who's been entrusted with the gospel, with people wherever you live, learn, work, and play, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with the gospel that's been entrusted to you as a follower of Christ? That's the question we're going to start off with today. You know, it's just something light, you know, nothing too heavy, all right? Let's pray, let's dive in. Father, thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for this good news. That we who are sinners, we who have at one point been enemies of yours, objects of your wrath, have through the gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, what he did through the resurrection, can be made whole and restored back into relationship with you, forgiven, a new life, a new identity. God, thank you for that gospel. Lord, it wasn't just for a moment of conversion. It's not just information we need to know you. It's information that continues to help us grow in you. So, Father, as we come today to your word, we pray that you will just open our ears, our minds, our eyes, our hands, <laughs> help us receive what you want, and then live it out. We ask that in Jesus' name. We all said Amen. We're going to pick up where we left off from last week with my pastor uh, buddy, Rick Dunk. And I hope you guys that were here enjoyed him coming and just sharing about how you can know Christ, uh, share Christ. Also to find your own unique way of sharing the gospel and living out the gospel with those around you. Um, we're going to pick up where he left off. He was teaching uh, in Galatians. And we're going to resume Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. And for those of you who might be new or newer to North Bible Church, um, my name's Chad, lead pastor here. It's, it's good to meet you. I'm glad that you guys are here. We'd love a chance to connect with you in person um, in the info center if you get a chance afterwards. But uh, we kicked off this series a few weeks ago through this book of Galatians. So you can open up your Bible or turn on your Bible if you use an app to the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 2. And here what we're seeing is that God is using his servant, the Apostle Paul, to bring instruction and encouragement to this group of first century Christians in modern day uh, Turkey, back then, you know, minor Asia. And he has specific messages and specific concerns for the people of Galatians. Just a reminder, if you are newer, um, that a couple tools we've offered for you to maximize your time here is you'll see on a table out there these little books of Galatians. Uh, we just took the book of Galatians out of Scripture and isolated it so you can use it. There's a journal on one side of the pages and the verses on the other, so you can just have a dedicated you know, op opportunity to learn what you learn in Galatians. Those are out there. Just take them. If you want to donate something, put it in the box. Also, uh, we have a little bookmark that has the verses that we're going to be uh, teaching on each week. And so you can look at them and read them and kind of come prepared about what we're going to look at. And so today we're in Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And uh, let's read those together. Just look at Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10, follow along with me. Then after 14 years, this is, this is Paul kind of resuming his testimony. He, he, he was spending the, the back half of chapter 1 explaining how he came to Christ, right? And he's resuming. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, 
Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been, what's the next word? Entrusted. That I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been, what's the next word? Entrusted, right? Entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, if you have not been hanging out with us in the book of Galatians for the last few weeks, you are like, what on earth is going on? And some of you are going, I have been reading Galatians with you. I still don't know what's going on. Uh, let's try to unpack this a little bit together. I want to focus on four lessons that we can learn, all right? I think looking at these verses, we can have four lessons uh, from Paul in these verses on when we're entrusted with the gospel. The, the first lesson is this. When you're entrusted with the gospel, you represent the gospel in unity with other believers. Look again at verses 2 Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, for those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not or had not been running in vain. 14 years after the Apostle Paul had his miraculous supernatural encounter with Christ and was converted, he came to Jerusalem, and he came to the early church leaders. Now, they're named later on. We see that these three people were James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, right? James uh, was, was the son of Mary, all right? So his half-brother of Jesus. Uh, we see that it was Peter, which is his uh, Greek name. We know that his Hebrew name is Simon. He's also known as Cephas, which is his Aramaic name. So sometimes you're like, what's this guy's name? Simon, Peter, Cephas. The answer is yes, right? Three different languages. So Peter in Greek, Simon in Hebrew, Cephas in Aramaic. And so he was the second of the church leaders in Jerusalem. And then we have the apostle John. And so he comes to them, and, and the wisdom, he comes with a private conversation. He says, look, if we have a big audience, this can get sideways. So I just secretly sought a more conversational, private, intimate moment with the church leaders after 14 years of doing ministry and evangelizing and sharing the gospel because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't running in vain, meaning that all my effort, all my work, all my energy didn't cause damage or was off base or was not validated or supported. He did not have to go back to Jerusalem. You've got Peter, you've got James, you've got John. These men were appointed as apostles by the resurrected Jesus Christ. Uh, they were with Jesus. They saw Jesus. And then you have the apostle Paul, who also was made an apostle by the resurrected Jesus Christ. They're apostolic peers. And so all this language that Paul's using is basically saying this. Uh, these are my apostolic peers. They're not over me. They, they didn't summons me 
to Jerusalem to like supervise me. God gave me a revelation, some sort of prompting, whether it was a dream or a Holy Spirit nudge. Uh, God moved in Paul to go to Jerusalem to have a moment of unity with those that were leading the church in Jerusalem. That's what Paul was doing here. So that uh, it wouldn't cause him to run in vain. Imagine how bad it would be is if those who were in the Jerusalem church created kind of a Jewish church, and then Paul and his ministry kind of created a non-Jewish or Gentile church, or in this terminology, uncircumcised church, and he had two big entities. So out of the gate, God's trying to let everyone be, be reminded that we're one family. There were one team, we're team Jesus. And so he's, he's, he's going to pursue unity. And uh, he, he gets this conversation. Uh, look, look at Galatians 2, verses 6 through 9 again. He's talking about those who seemed influential, basically saying the fact that they were apostles doesn't intimidate me, nor, nor am I awestruck by that. Uh, it doesn't really matter because God's not showing partiality. We're all apostles, right? And he says they didn't add anything to me or to his ministry. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, meaning non-Jewish Gentiles, all right, and that Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised or the Jewish people, he's saying there was an equal entrustment. So this moment of unity was so that it was clear that the essence and the substance of the gospel that Peter and James and John were teaching in the Jewish church that had a primarily Jewish audience was indeed the same substance and content that Paul was teaching out and about with the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And so uh, Paul was entrusted with the gospel primarily to a non-Jewish context, not exclusively, because Jewish people came to faith under his ministry. And Peter and the Jerusalem church were uh, entrusted with the gospel to a primarily Jewish audience, although not exclusively, because non-Jews came to faith under their ministry. And so all of this moment was all about unity. That we have the same gospel. We have the same message, even though we might have some different context in which we share the message. And then there's this beautiful phrase saying that they gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. That is an expression that Peter, James, and John partnered in spirit with the Apostle Paul. This right hand of fellowship is a, a, an expression of support, of friendship, of partnership, saying we're the same. And what we're doing is the same, even though we might have different context as our primary audience. Now, a couple of thoughts, I think, for us and lessons that we can take out of this as we try to pursue unity for the sake of the gospel. One, I really like the fact that Paul was not enamored nor intimidated by the leaders in the Jerusalem church. And I think that's a good reminder that we too should not really ever be enamored by people. When you encounter Jesus Christ, when you know the creator of all things in a personal intimate way, it puts people in perspective. And we too should not find ourselves um, being in awe of people, enamored by people, um, raising people up to celebrity status. We shouldn't find ourselves giving people the worship, the adoration um, that is worthy of Christ alone. 
And so we live in a culture that, that you know, whether it's, you know, a, a musician, an athlete, some sort of celebrity, an influencer, all of a sudden they want to draw an audience to themselves and draw a high level of adoration. Give us your money. Give us your attention. Give us your followership. And it's sad because so many people, even professing believers, will give more money, more energy, more effort to those people than to their own God. And there's a difference. There's a contrast in energy. And so uh, we aren't smitten by people. We can, we can respect them. We can appreciate them. We can admire them for, for how God's using them. But we don't want to cross the line where all of a sudden we're intimidated by or we elevate them to a celebrity status because uh, that level of adoration is reserved for Jesus alone. Amen? The other lesson I think here for us is this. When we look at this right hand of fellowship, that uh, the church of Christ is huge and diverse. And there are people and there are faith-based organizations and churches that have the same gospel, but they are giving it into a different context. And you don't have to be around church too long or a small group too long before you start to slip into criticizing or even villainizing another believer or a group of believer or churches because their context is different than yours. Now, I'm talking, I'm talking about genuine, authentic believers proclaiming the true gospel of Christ. But I want you to think about that. Um, we, we see these divides. Maybe it's a small church or a big church. The big churches can find themselves down-talking the small churches. The small churches can find themselves down-talking the big churches, right? Or maybe it's those who are working in an urban context. They're like, they're in the city, just surrounded by poverty and addiction and brokenness. And it'd be very easy for them to go like, yeah, we're really doing ministry, but those guys in the affluent suburbs, well, you know, they're just pretending. No. If it's the same gospel, if it's the same hope to reach lost people who don't know Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're a big church, small church, inner city, suburbans, uh, context, whether you're working with the poorest of the poor or celebrities and, and, and high-level business leaders, it doesn't matter. If it's the same gospel, we should be providing a united front, which means we celebrate and sometimes even partner with our brothers and sisters of Christ who are in a different context. We give them the right hand of fellowship. And so I think that's a very convicting thought because if you've been a believer for years, sometimes decades, you can look back and go, ugh. Instead of the right hand of fellowship, I found myself being one of the worst critics of that church, of that group of believers. Well, you know what? Maybe the methods are different. Maybe their context is different, but if their gospel is the same, if their hope to reach lost people and grow them in Christ and send them out into the world to do ministry is the same, why would we not give them the right hand of fellowship even though their target audience might be different? Whether it's the little huts in the jungles around the world or the massive cities and industries around the world, it's the same gospel. And so we should always display a united front. Romans 15, five through six says this, May the God of encouragement and endurance grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as followers of Jesus Christ entrusted with the gospel, we represent the gospel in unity with other believers. That's one lesson I think we can take as we see Paul engage the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. The second lesson is this. You don't do gospel work alone. When you study the life and ministry of the apostle Paul, you see he always seems to have people with him, right? 
He's always bringing along Barnabas or Titus or Timothy, and then there's a litany of other names if you study the life and ministry of Paul. It's very rare that you find him alone unless he's like locked up in prison, right? But even in then, uh, even then in some moments, he's got others with him. We see it here, Galatians 2.1. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And so we see Barnabas. Barnabas was a Jewish man. Uh, he, he was sort of a mentor even to Paul, but he was a friend, he was a ministry partner, and he was validating Paul's message. And so the Jews in Jerusalem gave probably a little more credibility as they listened not just to Paul, but also to another man of God that they respected, Barnabas. And so it strengthened that moment, it strengthened that message. And then of course you had Titus, who was a Greek believer, who, who was not circumcised, who was there as well. It's kind of exhibit A, that you, you can come to faith in Christ and you don't have to become Jewish to truly be saved. And so that's what we see is the benefit in this moment where Paul had others with him, but he always uh, often had people with him as he proclaimed the, uh, the gospel and lived on mission. And even the fact that Paul went to Jerusalem to engage Peter and John and James again shows that, that we're not alone in the gospel work. We're to try to live for Christ and be on mission for Christ in relationship, in community with others on a regular basis. Um, now, another reason this was very important is if we back up a little bit, we remember that the reason that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians was there was this group of people called the Judaizers, we'll talk about them a little bit more in a second again, that were saying they were believers in Christ, but the message that they were infiltrating the church with in the churches of Galatia was that, yes, it's good that you're uh, proclaiming to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus, but you also have to become Jewish, meaning you've got to be circumcised if you're a male, you've got to obey the dietary laws, you have to, you know, honor all the festivals and feasts of the Jewish holidays. Like, you still have to do all of those things as well as follow Jesus. So, so the fact that Paul went to Jerusalem and basically got a thumbs up from the most Jewish leaders in Jerusalem would then put those Judaizers to rest and silence them because they would think that Paul, uh, Peter and James and John would side with them. Paul's going, no, 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 they actually sided with me, so your argument no longer works. It's kind of like this. There are times, I'm sure you've never done this, I'm sure your children have never done this, but there are times when a child might go to mom with an idea or a desire or a want and try to get her on uh, their side so that they can go to dad and convince him to say yes. Not that you would ever do that, no child would ever do that, I'm sure. But there's a problem when that child all of a sudden realizes mom and dad are on the same page. And that idea is dead in the water, right? Oh, mom and dad both agree. There goes that idea. That's what's happening here. It's now that Peter and James and John are in agreement with Paul, the Judaizers have no traction for their arguments. It's like, well, there, there goes that idea. But that happened because Paul wasn't out there by himself. He had Barnabas. He had Titus. Now he had the support of Peter and James and John. And so he's not doing gospel ministry alone. He's leveraging the benefits of others. Um, so living on mission with other believers not only provides friendship 
and support and encouragement. Uh, it also strengthens the gospel potency. We also saw Jesus model this, right? Like how many times do you really see Jesus alone in the three years of his ministry? There are moments, but much of what we have recorded, he's always surrounded by somebody. He's got three, he's got 12, he's got thousands, you know? And so we see also when he sends the believers out, right? Jesus sent out the 12 disciples in pairs. We see that in Mark 6, 7. Then he gathered a larger group of disciples in Luke 10, 1. Jesus sent out 72 of them in pairs. And so when we live on mission for Christ, we're really not designed to do that, and nor is it wise to do that alone. That's where we get that term maverick, right? To be a maverick. Now, using that as a quick little example, I, I don't know, uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it by now, but I was looking forward to, like many of you, to the movie Top Gun Maverick coming out. But if you really think about it, here's this movie, Maverick. The primary character is Tom Cruise, who's playing this hotshot pilot, Maverick. But yet, if he truly was a maverick and there was no other person in the jet with him or flying in the air with him, we would have no maverick, right? Like the famous lines from the original, like they're, they're flying and fighting, talk to me, goose. Goose is in the cockpit. There's other pilots, right? Fast forward to the new movie, talk to me, rooster. Tell me when you see smoke. Like he's relying on that. And then the moment when all of a sudden he and rooster are like, again, spoiler alert, right? They're gonna die. Hangman comes out of the air, shoots down the other jet, saves his life. So maverick isn't really a maverick. He has a maverick spirit, but the reality is he needs others in the fight to survive. You might be maverick in spirit, but let me make an appeal to you. If you're truly trying to live like a maverick, you're done. You're toast. You listen to the people who fail in the marriages, fail morally, um, get discouraged, just get benched you know, from ministry or just from life, and you start to realize they're doing it alone. Who's your 2 a.m. friend? Who's on speed dial when you need someone in a pinch? And so when we live for Christ, when we live for the gospel, we're trying to make a difference in this world for the Lord, like you don't do it alone. We see that very clearly here and all through the life of the Apostle Paul. And so when you're entrusted with the gospel, you don't do gospel work alone. Also, when you're entrusted with the gospel, you guard the gospel. The gospel is a message that should not be tampered with or adapted or modified. It shouldn't be diluted, nor should it be twisted or perverted. And the gospel has been a message of Christ coming and dying and raising for us to be restored back in relationship with God that has been attacked so many times since its inception. And so we're called to guard the gospel. That's what Paul is doing here. Uh, again, the problem of the churches is that these Judaizers had come in and they were trying to distort the message of the gospel. Look at what uh, Paul says in Galatians 2, 4, and 5 again. He says, yet because false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us again into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul's letter to the Galatians was an effort to guard the gospel. 
so that it didn't become distorted by these Judaizers who were kind of going into stealth mode and slipping in and starting to plant cancerous, spiritually cancerous ideas into the church. Paul knew that it was his role to guard the gospel. He even says that in Philippians 1.6. He says, I'm here for the defense of the gospel. And so for the Galatians, these Judaizers were coming and they were uh, trying to distort the gospel. And Paul is not having it. And now what's interesting is Paul was not um, saying that those who did decide to get circumcised or those who did decide to do Jewish festivities and laws were sinning or that was wrong. He was just saying it's not necessary to be a true follower of Christ. It's not necessary to be saved. So he wasn't condemning these acts. He's just saying uh, it's not necessary for salvation like this other group is trying to teach you. Now, it's interesting. Paul called those who were putting this teaching forward false brothers. This is a pretty severe phrase. Uh, the word there is the word pseudodelphos. It's only used two times in the New Testament, and both times by Paul referring to people who are actually not believers. So when he calls them false brothers, he's not saying they're brothers who are thinking falsely. He's saying they are false brothers. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're pretending to be a follower of Christ, but in reality, they're not. They have not truly believed in the message of grace, that your salvation, your forgiveness, your relationship with God is through Christ alone, through faith alone, grace alone. You don't have to add to it. And so he's saying these guys aren't actually believers. They're false. They're not true. And he says they, their effort to bring you into what they're teaching is actually going to enslave you. You have been free in Christ so that all those rituals, all those rules, you aren't required to do those to have relationship with God. You don't have to say certain prayers in a certain way. You don't have to go to certain people and they hold the keys to heaven, but no one else does. Christ came. He's the only mediator between God and man. So all you need is Christ. He goes, that's freeing, right? When you came to Christ, it frees you from slavery whether it's slavery to sin, or some of you maybe came up in a religious background where it freed you from a religious slavery. You never felt good enough. You always felt guilty. You always felt ashamed. You always felt like God was looking down on you, and then you had to do these religious works to somehow please him. That's not the Bible. You've been freed from the power of sin. You've been freed to live and enjoy Christ, enjoy your relationship with him, and so Paul says, if you take the bait and get hooked, they're going to draw you back into a life of religious slavery, of do's and don'ts and religious entrapment. That's what he was so concerned about. Now, what we don't know is really the heart of those Judaizers. Did they know that they were off base, but they didn't care, and they were trying to be sneaky and, and, and deceive people on purpose? I, I personally don't come to that conclusion. I think these people sincerely thought they were believers and they were doing the right thing. But here's what we need to understand. Sincerity doesn't mean you're right. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. Right? 
And do not look at your spouse at this moment. I don't typically do this, but every now and then it's like, let me, let me just be, let me be more clear, okay? Like, a lot of us may have friends who um, are in the Jehovah's Witness faith. Some of us may have friends who are in the Mormon faith. I do not believe that those men and women and boys and girls are evil, deceptive people trying to drag people into a belief system. It's like, I think they are sincere in what they believe. But they can sincerely believe that and sincerely be wrong because it's a distortion of the gospel. It's a distortion of what God has made known. And so we want to guard the gospel truths as God has given them to us. You know, in Jude, which is, you know, one chapter, basically, verses three and four, it says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. For that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who no longer were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and denying our only master, Lord Jesus Christ. But this is a common theme that as followers of Christ, part of our responsibility when we're entrusted with the gospel is to guard it from those who would modify it, that would change it. A couple weeks ago, uh, Brent shared this mathematics of false gospels or mathematics of false teaching that we had talked about. I want to revisit that. If some of you are going, how do I know if I hear false teaching that it's false? Remember the mathematics of the false, the false gospels, the false teachings, okay? First, they add to the Bible. God gave us his word. That's enough. We don't need anything else. If they say, well, yeah, you have the Bible and you also have and done, they add to the Bible, Okay? Or they subtract from the deity of Christ. Well, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher, but, but he wasn't God. Well, well, Jesus did a great thing. Well, his, his death on the cross forgave most of sin, but, but not all. And they subtract from Christ's deity. They multiply the means of salvation. Well, well, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus, plus you also have to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. It's multiple. No. And wrong. And they divide the body of Christ just like the Judaizers were. They caused division. They caused confusion. And so let that be a framework for you when it comes to that. Um, just to lean into that a little bit more, religions that add works, they add their own books, they distort the Bible to match their own ideology, man-made rules, traditions, um, over biblical teaching, also certain preferences. Maybe uh, it's more about appearance than authenticity. Maybe it's more about externals than the heart. Maybe it's more about rules than relationship. Maybe it's more about policies rather than people. Maybe these are religious systems that focus on the do's and don'ts rather than what Christ did. Any teaching or view that elevates non-essentials to the same as a salvation issue, and sometimes that means it comes out in political ideology, it comes out in social status, different manifestations, we have to be on alert and guard the gospel against these perversions. There's, there's one specific one. I'll, I won't go into it in detail. You can look it up on your own. Um, we actually see infiltrating the church right now. It's been kind of getting sneaky and, and growing in popularity. There's something called the Hebrew Roots Movement. 
The Hebrew Roots Movement is almost exactly what Paul was dealing with here about 2,000 years ago in the Church of Galatia. The Hebrew Roots Movement is a, is a movement of believers that are professing Christians, but they basically say, if you're truly gonna follow Christ, you have to live a Torah lifestyle. You have to embrace fully the Jewishness of the Christian faith. You have to go back and you, you know what, you've got to honor the, the holidays. You should eat kosher. You should do all these things. Like if you truly know Christ, love Christ, you're going to become basically a Hebrew Christian. That's why it's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. That's a very, very small description of a much larger and even some diversity within that belief system. But it's infiltrating the church because I think people love it. Like for those of you who understand the Jewishness of the Christian faith, like that's why I love to go back to Israel. That's why I love to leave study tours in the Bible lands is we're so far removed from some of the layers of depth and meaning and beauty of our faith. But this Hebrew Roots movement takes it to another extreme. And now you're not talking about grace anymore. You're not talking about relationship with Christ. You're talking about rigid rules and structure. And so uh, that, that's one example of this still happening today. So if you've been entrusted with the gospel, you're to guard the gospel. You've got to guard the gospel and its truths. Lastly, if you've been entrusted with the gospel, one lesson we can get out of this text is you translate the gospel into action. I love that there's 10 verses, but there's one verse at the end of this section, verse 10. As Peter and James and John were talking to Paul, they said, they asked us to remember the poor. Of course, Paul's response was the very thing I was eager to do. Those brothers in Jerusalem just gave one admonition. Like, Paul, your message is the same message we're preaching. We're so excited about how God's using you to reach the non-Jews. Man, right-handed fellowship. Hey, just, just one thing. Please don't forget the poor. Like, some of those churches and, you know, Gentile areas are pretty wealthy. And uh, right now we're kind of struggling here in Jerusalem. And there's some other pockets of poverty. Like, don't, don't forget the poor as you're trying to reach out to people with this good news. Of course, Paul's like, I'm already eager to do that, right? And when you study this time during the Roman Empire, during the time of Paul, there were a series of famines. And so poverty was at a, was at a high mark, um, especially for widows and orphans. And we, we think even believers who were uh, disowned by their families because of their new faith in Christ. So there's a lot of poverty in saying, look, you need to make sure you're not forgetting the poor. And of course, Paul's like, on lock, I already love the poor. You know, in Ephesians 2.10, it says, for we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, what's the next two words? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk in the good works that God prepared for us even before you were born. We see in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. See, you can't preach the gospel message without doing gospel-driven works. They go together. That's a whole other series of messages. But the bottom line is, the gospel is not just a message, it's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. The people that you're praying for, the people that you're sharing the gospel with, are they also seeing how valid the gospel is through how you live your life, loving 
serving, blessing others? Are your hands and feet just as much a gospel instrument as your mouth? Because you can't separate it. You know, the gospel is going to translate to good works. All right, I just want to review those four lessons that we can learn from this passage. When you're entrusted with the gospel, you represent the gospel in unity with other believers. You don't do gospel work alone. You guard the gospel, and you translate the gospel into action. So I want to ask you the question I asked when we got started. As people who've been entrusted with the gospel, where you live, learn, work, and play, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? I've got some specific reflection application questions. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me up here. I want you guys to hang out and honestly assess how you would answer these questions. Here's one. Am I supportive and encouraging to those preaching and acting upon the gospel in a different context? How are you at giving the right hand of fellowship to people who have the same message, but maybe it's a very different audience? How are you doing showing encouragement and support to them? Second, am I a gospel maverick or part of the gospel team? Part of Team Jesus. Which one's most descriptive of you? Thirdly, am I equipped and ready to defend the gospel from false teaching? What do you need to learn? How do you need to grow? Right? And obviously, how you defend the gospel is just as important, by the way. You don't want to be pugnacious. You don't want to be rude. You don't want to be crass. That's not the approach Christ took, nor should it be the approach we take. That's also one of the reasons I'm offering. In fact, studying for this message and writing this question is what prompted me to go like, it's probably just good to put something on the calendar to help us learn how to share our faith better, more skillfully, more confidently. And so that's a good opportunity for you to learn how to guard the gospel and share the gospel. And uh, fourthly, am I translating the gospel message into gospel action around me? Am I taking this good news and actually translating it into action to the people around me? As you look at those questions, which question reveals a strength in your life? Like when you think about those four, which one can you just say, praise God, I, I feel like this is actually pretty strong in my life right now? And the second is, what question reveals an area that needs work? So I'm giving you homework. Ask that to somebody sitting next to you, somebody you came with, somebody you're going to see you in the next couple hours that shared this message with you. Sat through it, heard the same thing you've heard. Just say, hey, those, those four pieces, which one do you feel like is going well? Which one do you think like needs work? All right? And so ask each other those questions. Some of you, you're probably going to do it before you leave the room. I know you. You're going to stand up and be like, hey, so. Some of you are going to get settled into a little booth somewhere in a restaurant. This is a great conversation for you guys to have to encourage one another. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close in prayer. Just ask God to bring application to this for us. Father, thank you so much for the reminder of the power of your gospel. Father, thank you for the example of Paul, Barnabas, Titus, Peter, James, John, just a little glimpse of that. Father, we confess that we have not always been good at what we just heard. Celebrating our brothers and sisters of Christ, sharing the same message, but maybe in a different context. We haven't always been good at letting this translate into action. 
God, we haven't been good about partnering with others and prayer and encouragement for the sake of the gospel. We're so sorry for that. Father, we want to please you. We want to help others come to know you. So take the words that were said, the words that were read. Father, we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would translate that into action through our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Also, as we get prepared to just close in worship, if you're here today and you actually don't have a relationship with Christ, or something I said sparked curiosity about what it means to follow Christ, I'd love to talk to you. We've got a couple other friends that would just love to say, hey, how can we help answer questions? We're going to be hanging out over here in the front after the service. And after the service is over, if you want to talk more about following Christ, come see us. Uh, you can also send an email if you're online to info at northbible.com, and we'll, we'll catch up to you. Let's worship. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.